Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. Masculine tops, power bottoms, butch girls, femme boys, bears, otters, unicorns. There's no shortage of labels that queer people use to describe different sexual identities and preferences. But how do we navigate that horny, thorny path between realizing we're queer and deciding which boxes to check when filling out our dating profiles? Fruit Bowl features first-person stories that explore the unique ways we develop our sexual identities by sharing the sometimes messy, always fascinating, real-life sex histories of queer people. Our first introduction to sex, the embarrassing moments we'd like to forget, and the reliable bedroom moves that we've discovered along the way. Basically, all the stuff we wish we'd known when we first came out. Interviews are edited for clarity and brevity because we all know how much we love to talk about ourselves. Thanks for listening. Let's begin. Welcome to Fruit Bowl, an oral history of queer sex. I'm your host and the creator of Fruit Bowl, Dave. And with me today is my co-host for this episode, Jalen. Welcome, Jalen. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. We are, as always, inside my walk-in closet in my house. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's almost steamy. Feels, yeah, it's a steamy day today in, in Seattle. So it's nice to be inside. But unfortunately, I can't also record and have air conditioning on. So thank you for sweating it out with me. Anytime. <laughs> and just as a heads up to our listeners, as I mentioned in episode one, the format of Fruit Bowl podcast is is going to evolve as we go. And I've decided that the episodes are starting to get a little bit too long. And so instead of featuring two interviews per episode, I've decided to just feature one interview, Jalen's interview here. And following the interview, we'll discuss it with Jalen. And then for the next episode, episode six, Jalen will return to discuss another episode from Tyler. So just wanted to clarify that change in the format. All right, here we go with Jalen's interview. So my first name is Jalen. Um, I'm 41 and my hometown is Jackson, Mississippi. So I think I um, first learned about sex with friends uh, casually and usually pretty wrong about it and family members um, having fun and their drunkenness and barbershops, lots of barbershop talk. I mean, I recall a lot of, there was a lot of jokes, but things that I took seriously because I didn't know a lot about sex. And I actually recall one instance when um, one of the barbers was talking about um, someone putting a, a mouse up their ass. And I, and he essentially, you know, was using the F word um, uh, in reference to who it was. And so I thought that's what it meant to be gay is that you had to put mice up your ass. <laughs> 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 but I mean, I later learned learned better. And at the time I was uh, presenting as a male and identifying as, um, well, I didn't know what gay was, but as a gay man. My earliest uh, memories of expressing my sexuality uh, was a lot of watching HBO late at night uh, after parents uh, go to bed and um, doing a lot of exploring on whatever I could find or on Showtime. Um, thankfully, we had cable. I mean, I think real sex was happening at that time. Um, and then 
There was um, just a series, oh, Emmanuel, I think they were, like they played every single night. Um, that may have been on Cinemax or Skinemax is what we called it. It was totally, the show was totally about um, Emmanuel's sexual adventures. And um, I don't remember a lot, but there was always a new guy, a new exploration. There was a lot of travel in it too, I think, and I was obsessed with getting out of Mississippi. It was a femme character. In retrospect, I identified a lot with her and the way that she expressed her sexuality. There were like five different series of Emmanuel and it was really seductive. And so it was actually a good place to sort of learn like sexual play and romance. Um, it wasn't too, mm, it wasn't too hard. Then there was like Emmanuel Seductress. Oh, it's all coming back to me now. <laughs> there were a few Emmanuels, like part three, four, and 10. I swear to God, it was every night. I do uh, remember one friend that we used to um, talk a lot and do some, you know, cautious exploration. Um, he was uh, on the couch under the cushions of the couch and I was on top and we were I was humping him as I had seen of course on HBO um, so that's that's sort of like my first explorations and they were all around this one guy too he was a neighbor kid from around the corner he was my best friend and um, I think he was just just curious too uh, like me about um, about sex the exact same age as I was and we were really close yeah What's really strange is I'm trying to think of my first time and I don't quite, it happened really early. Um, there were levels of uh, engagement with sex. Um, I mean, there's blowjobs that happen first and then um, dry humping and then of course eventually anal sex and vaginal sex and, and et cetera um, later on. I think the first impactful had to be with another neighbor. I, was, I apparently was the, the little slut of the neighborhood. So. <laughs> but it was another neighbor who wasn't always there, but only came in the summers. And um, I don't quite remember the first time, but I know that it was Kim that I did the most exploration with for every following summer when he came until I didn't see him again in high school. He was the first one that I um, attempted to give a blowjob. So I didn't really know what a blowjob was. Um, like sucking dick wasn't really in my vocabulary at the time. Um, and so what does it sound like? Um, we knew it had to do with a penis and a mouth. And so somehow we thought it was blowing. So there was some oral involved, so I would get it wet. And then I thought the, the, the purpose was to actually get the cold feeling on his penis. So I'd get it wet with my mouth and then just start blowing on it like <laughs> just, so, And he liked it, so I guess it did work. And he is the um, first one where we attempted anal sex and I, it was too much, um, for particularly for me. Um, but uh, eventually over the course of summers, we figured out how to do it. And he'd come back with more knowledge that he was getting from somewhere in Texas, I don't know where, but um, he'd come back with more knowledge and we'd do more exploration. The experience was very positive for me. The only negative was he was, of course, both of us were Christian and we were in black Christian society in the South, um, him in Texas, and me in Mississippi. And so we had to hide it, um, um, our sexual explorations, and felt really guilty about it. Um, particularly, there would it would eventually happen that we'd go through a series of explorations and before he left, 
uh, for the end of the summer, he would just stop talking to me because he got either ashamed, embarrassed, or something happened. Um, but then it we'd repeat the cycle the next year. So the most embarrassing sexual experience that I've had, I think, um, I was uh, living in D.C. I had just moved um, from the South and gotten a job um, as a flight attendant. I got laid off. And so I needed some money. And um, I was doing a lot of partying, having a lot of sex with a lot of people. And one of my friends suggested, um, hey, why don't you just see if you can make some money doing it because you're already whoring. And so, I, you know, I thought in my mind at the time that was a really good idea. And I had a lot of friends who were actually sex workers and they had good lives and they were rolling in dough. So they hooked me up um, with this person. I called and I was a little nervous and he seemed nice. And he said, um, hey, um, I'll take you out to a really nice dinner and then we can hook up later and figure out if it's going to work. So uh, we go to dinner. It was a hole in the wall. And like he ordered food for me. It was like a rotting salad. It was really disgusting. But I was like, OK, this is fine. The whole time he just kept talking about himself and um, uh, all the things he did. He was a fashion designer, his backup singer. He traveled to Paris and traveled to London. It was just on and on and on. So finally, the date was over and um, we made it to his house, which happened to be next door. Um, to the restaurant, so he didn't make much of an effort. And um, I mean, the house was cute, but it looked like he had inherited from his grandmother because it was decorated in 1950s style. So it's I was expecting something different. We went to his room. He was uh, he was a really big boy, and I remember my friend told me um, when I when I thought about doing it, like he's a big boy, and I was like, that's fine. I like big boys. I love big boys. And so, but he was big, really big boy. And so he got to his room and he took his clothes off and I'm like, yeah, this is still cool, this is cute. And then he starts talking again about like, oh, I sang backup for Anita Baker and I sang backup for blah, blah, and I designed for Pete, oh, P. Diddy, and I did this and I did that. And so he's, this is going on while he's naked. And so I'm like, okay, well, what do I do? And um, so I say, okay, I just need to like suck his dick. And so I start like, taking my clothes off and he I think the words were like uh bitch dance for me or something like bitch strip for me and so I'm like okay I'm a horrible dancer <laughs> so I'm taking my clothes off and like jerking like I do and I dance because I'm not a great dancer and uh trying to be sexy and um he's still talking about himself this whole time and he pulls out like this wad of cash which was awesome and he starts balling it up and throwing it at me and throwing it at my head while I'm trying to like dance and I'm like avoiding like the dollar bills coming at my head. And um, then he's he's still talking like, I hate blah, 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 I own this house and I make so much money. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. So I I think in my mind, I need to get out of here. Like this is this is feeling like a little unsafe. And then he's like, don't you want this money? And I'm like, yeah, it's a shitload of money. So I'm gonna go ahead and do this. So he turns around um, and bends over and he spreads his ass and he says, stick your fucking face in this. And I'm like, OK, this is normally fine with me. But in this context, I wasn't feeling it. But I was like, OK, I'm going to do it. And I got close 
and there's like the sides of his cheeks were leathery and they were like, I think, what do you call them, dingleberries? And I'm like, I can't, there's no way I can do this. I need to get out of here. And so I say, I gotta go to the bathroom. And I don't know how, but I got my clothes and I started running for the door. And like halfway out the door, I'm halfway naked. I hear him like yelling in the background, I sang for Patti LaBelle. hard to figure out what my best move is. I think not injuring the other person is, is a pretty damn good move for me. I can be awkward and clumsy. And um, oftentimes uh, my good sexual experiences are with people who have a sense of humor so that we can actually laugh about clumsiness. I mean, inevitably you're gonna get hit in the eye with the elbow or something is gonna happen. Uh, or I'm gonna fall or, you know, my hair falls off or something. Uh, so it hasn't been that dramatic yet. Um, I do enjoy, I, I enjoy sucking, sucking guys off um, and, and getting as deep as I can and like really getting into it. And it almost feels like I have a full body orgasm when it's really good. Well, I'm not sure how uh, the guys felt about it because apparently in reflection, I don't know whether or not they liked it or not, but I enjoyed myself, so. <laughs> I wish someone told me that monogamy um, wasn't a hard and set rule, um, that I could be proud to explore my sex and sexuality with as many partners as I want to um, and within my own boundaries. I wish someone had told me that the importance of actually having boundaries around um, what's, what I want and what I don't want to do and that um, fundamentally that the other person will appreciate that more because you're in your zone um, sexually. <laughs> well, you're laughing, so that's a good sign. Yeah, it's... Um... It was good to hear it. You know, I we did this, what, a year ago? Mm -hmm. And just the amount of reflection and growth that I can hear in my own voice over the years. Yeah. Um, talking about sex was um, inspiring. And it is, like, my sex life hilarious, right? <laughs> <laughs> what I like about your interview is that you do have a sense of humor yeah. about sex. You know, and, and that's something I think I didn't realize in my formative years is is how sex can be fun and you don't have to take yourself too seriously mm. and that you might get clumsy or something might happen that's embarrassing, but you just keep on soldiering on. <laughs> I feel like that's a really valuable lesson and it's something that your your interview articulates really well is is how you've how far you've come and you've grown into seeing sex as something that's positive, a positive yeah. experience. Yeah, it's taken a while. Yeah. And as of that interview, I hadn't had the hair falling off. But since then, it has. So <laughs> this is why I have to have humor, you know. It's just like because I'm fallible and I'm human and, you know, my, my wig is a wig, right? And my feet trip sometimes and um but there's something about the partner who's able to also have that humor too with you yeah there's something about finding sexiness in the 
the raw humanity of who we are, right? Yes. Yeah. The everyday. The everyday. The fact that you were able to experiment with the same person and and both evolve, mm-hmm. even though it sounds as though your relationship did have some ups and downs and you both felt a sense of shame at times. Mm-hmm. The fact that you were able to kind of experience that with, with the same person, I'm envious of that because mm-hmm. I only had um, strangers and often they wouldn't want to ever have a conversation in, mm-hmm. my, in my early formative years of experimenting with sex. It was always very anonymous, you know, and, and I think there's something to be said for figuring it all out with somebody who's, your peer, you mm-hmm, know, and who, mm-hmm. who you can kind of identify with in terms of your life experience, you know, and because for me, not only were, did I have anonymous hookups, but there was often a, a big differentiation age wise, yeah, you know, and, and I was always, I always felt really guilty about that, mm-hmm. that, that I was somehow, well, I was judging myself for having sex with older guys. Older dudes, yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't ever a situation where, like, I could have, like, an honest conversation with them afterwards. Mm -hmm. You know, we just wanted to, like, part ways and never speak again. So, I don't know. Do you, I know that you experimented with with your friend physically, but did you ever have a chance to just talk about? Yeah, I mean, we we played, Mm -hmm. right? So, we had our normal, like, friendship play relationship. Um, There were lots of trails around Mm. the neighborhood, so we would go hiking and do all the things. And then there was the sex, you know, time. And we also had some, I think we had conversations about it. I recall around um, anal sex, there were a lot of conversations about what we thought would work or wouldn't work, just functionally, and figuring out how to do it and and, like, talking ourselves into it. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, there were conversations. And I I appreciate your reflection on that because I don't think that I've had that level of appreciation for how there was so much guilt about it. Yeah. That I haven't thought about it in an appreciative way. Right. And it was actually kind of lovely. Yeah. It was kind of lovely. I could go back to it, you know, every single year. I knew his body. He knew mine. He'd go learn stuff and bring it back to me like a gift, you know. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And I do know that um, maybe even later in my own um, uh, sex life, that was not the case, right? It yeah. was the anonymous hookups. And those feel very differently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but for form- formative years, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Where do you think he was getting his information from? I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. Part of me thinks, um, I, I don't know. Part of me thinks that maybe there was an older person. Mm. That um, in their home place, right, that they were having some sort of interaction with. I mean, it would have been quite problematic if it was someone older or older yeah. because we were pretty young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was coming from somewhere, but also like maybe a brother, you know, that's okay. just telling him what to do. Right. You know, maybe porn. I don't know. I love, of course, your worst experience your your nightmare um but the part i can identify with most is the date where the other person only talks about themselves yeah that drives me crazy and it's always such a red flag where you're like at the end of the the dinner you're like you know i don't think that i've said two sentences this Mm -hmm. entire time Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah that one scared me um because i think it was such a tricky situation 
anyway. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing, trying to jump into work that I had no business doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and other folks have experience and no boundaries. And um, what scared me is I, I at least needed to make sure that the person who I was going to be with had some, you know, grounding. Yeah. And there was such, such a narcissism about the whole situation yeah. that it was like, Above and beyond anything I've ever experienced on a date. Like everything about your interactions with him sounded like I would have probably thrown in the towel after five minutes. I should have gotten the point after that salad. It was terrible. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time you needed cash, right? That's right. And so there were there was real need around sex. And I've always had a pretty positive um, view of sex work and sex workers. Right. And it's it's a queer thing. Yeah. You know. It's what we have to do to take care of ourselves sometimes. And sometimes we love it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. people do it for a living and they they can make their informed decisions as to who they are and are with. That's right. You know, and, and I feel like maybe if you had been more experienced, maybe you would have had the ability to walk away from the situation. Mm-hmm. Tell me if you think this is off base, but do you think maybe your friends purposefully Mm -hmm. fixed you up with that guy Mm -hmm. as sort of a test i think so Mm -hmm. i think so i'm not really friends with that person anymore but i think it was a okay let's see if this bitch can take it you know yeah and they kind of gave you a worst case scenario yes they did yeah (laughs) maybe this guy had a reputation for being a problematic John. Honestly, I remember now thinking about it. They told me that um, he was having issues finding someone like to take him on. And they told me it was because of his weight. And that's not what it was. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think he was telling the truth about all of his exploits? I think that maybe he was in a choir on the stage with Patti LaBelle one time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But there was no evidence of it in the house. I mean, the house was huge, but it wasn't, it was obviously inherited. You know, most of the stuff in there was old. So I don't think he was telling the truth about any of it. And he's a fashion designer, but he has like, I mean, it was kind of out of fashion then, but like rayon shirts on and like nothing was right. Nothing fit that story at all. (laughs) Was this pre-internet? It was 2001, I believe. No, we, we we were solid internet. Yeah, not quite the extent now. I mean, you could potentially have that reputation as as patty labelle's backup singer <laughs> and and uh, you wouldn't necessarily find evidence on, of it online i never googled it like it wasn't in my mind to like immediately go and look this person up right but that's what i'm saying is that i think it around 2001 was sort of before the time where you could google anyone and yeah. come up with a few links and as you could lie group. about shit yes <laughs> yeah you can't really get away with that kind of tail anymore although people still try (laughs) but yeah he sounds like a real piece of work yeah i loved your your early description of uh learning about sex through barbershop talk oh yeah (laughs) i you know after i came after i started getting more awareness about what what queer was right and started to come out and having more and more relationships um or interactions with boys it became less comfortable to be in the barbershop yeah I swear to God, it's like, I don't know if it's the barber that I went to, but there's an obsession with talking about gay men, right? 
And mm-hmm. so it always was something, right? And the 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 actually it was a hamster in the ass, right? Oh, right. Like that the story. The whole Richard Gere story. The whole is that what it came from? Yeah, Richard it's the Gere. Richard Gere story. I didn't. I don't think I knew that. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I only know that because I heard the same rumor Did on the you? playground. <laughs> I bet you it's the same time frame, or Probably. right around, or a little bit afterwards. Yeah, that's right. I'm wondering if maybe you think that your barbershop was so consumed with the, the the sort of derogatory language towards queer people was because maybe they feared being accused of that as as hair stylists. Yeah, and but so I think for us there was like the barber and the stylist were were always divided up pretty evenly, and so you'd have. Um, the the beauty shop mm-hmm. with stylists and that's where you found like all the queer folk and then you had a barber shop which was like this beacon of manliness right and historically of course in the African American community it was a place for the community to share news and to gather and organize too right and so it still has that spirit of men organizing and being as frank as they want to be and can be so there's not that mm. there's not that issue however. My barber was really hot, <laughs> really hot. And he would want me, because I was young and my hair used to get all oily, he'd want me to wash my hair before I came so that he could cut my hair well. But if I didn't wash my hair, he had to shampoo my hair. And something about when he shampooed it, his cock was right on my shoulder in the <laughs> shampooing. So I always came in there with a greasy head and he always got mad at me. <laughs> but there's something like in my imagination, I imagined him getting hard while he was doing it. Yeah. But he could have been. And that right. could have been his obsession. Mm. I don't know. Well, it also feels really good to have someone else wash your hair. Yeah, it does feel really good, especially when they have a huge cock on your shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a massage with a neighboring penis. Um. It's tricky with a barbershop, though, because that's a culture that I personally at this moment miss. Mm -hmm. Um, There's so much richness in there. And to an extent, when I go to a stylist now, I get some of that, right? Um, from the other side, right? Um, the culture of sort of women organizing. But I there's there's this navigation of like um, not being able to engage in community and romance and sex talks, right, that we do in public, the public discourse with my own community, right? But but are you able to have those conversations at the beauty parlor? It depends. If I'm there with one or two people, I think we can do it, right? But there's always this, there's still a sort of um, almost a fetishizing of, like they're way more accepting of queer folk um, just because of the history of queer folk in in the beauty um, salon. But there's still this like, you know, queer best friend, trans best friend, like not best friend, but like this is my trans girl, my, you know, that like, you can go home and say, hey, I had that trans girl there. She was talking about, like, getting poked in the whatever, you know. There's a feeling of that to an extent. You're exoticized a bit. Okay. That yeah. makes sense. Yes, that does make sense. Do you think that it would be different where you came from, like, in the South? Would there be another kind of experience? I think it might be the same. Yeah. Yeah, because the places that I go to um here are usually by black folks who are from elsewhere oh, okay right and so the honestly a salon looks like a salon oftentimes yeah. um particularly black ones and black run ones mm-hmm. so yeah i think it would be pretty similar and i know 
there are certain places where queer people were allowed to exist when I was growing up in the South, and that was the beauty shop was one of them. Okay, and the choir stand at church, right? Oh, um, interesting. So, yeah, you knew of out queer people in those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the whole of Mississippi Mass Choir is like this is a big choir in Mississippi, and they're well known. And there's I don't know a couple hundred of them. It's like you see every single one of them in the gay club when you go out. <laughs> oh, wow. That's interesting. Sorry, you, I'm outing people, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> right. Well, you just reminded me that in my hometown of Derby, Kansas, there was one hair salon where the owner was supposedly married mm-hmm. to a woman, but was so clearly gay, mm-hmm. you know, and everybody in town sort of knew that. And looking back, he was probably like, one of only a handful of gay people I knew mm-hmm. growing up. You know, I, I liked him. He was a cool guy, but I didn't, I couldn't really identify with him. I appreciated him just being who he was without apology. That to me was reason enough to sort of keep going to that salon and just knowing that people kind of had to interact with him. Mm-hmm. And and he was very effeminate mm-hmm. and and. People didn't seem to care that that to me was a win um, for for positive queer identity. That's right. That's right. And we had those two. My um, grandmother had an organ director who was like just fam to the max <laughs> and wore the most. I think they were probably in 1985, 1990, um, pushing 40s, maybe 50. Um, but wore like all the stuff of their youth, you know, like seventies, like all the things. And I'm sure, um, anyway, so they had this long hair on one side, like actually the styles in now, like shave side and long hair, um, on one side and had like, just always looked glamorous and shiny and sparkly and used to play the organ. And when they played like their hair, their hair would just bounce back and forth and back and forth. They're like the center of attention in the church. And I just remember them and everyone. Everyone loved that loved him, and yeah. so um, I mean, if he on pronouns, because I don't know what the real what the real pronouns are, but everyone loved him, and I um, um, there there was a bit of a like look right in this middle of this right in the middle of this church where we're not accepted as who we are. You cannot actually have your worship right, and your church will not have the attention um, that it has right now without this organ director, mm-hmm. right, or this organ player and music director. Yeah. Yeah. So he was well-respected. Well-respected. Yeah, well-respected in that context. Right. I loved your experience of learning about sex through HBO and Cinemax. Like, Like, if I could think of one commonality that is very often a part of people's learning process of the queer experience, it's it's through... Uh, cable TV. <laughs> yeah, which is actually pretty awesome, right? It is. And real sex was pretty solid. It you was. know, it's cis and all the things. Mm-hmm. But at the time, like, that was sex education, you know, yeah. for a lot of us. Well, so many of us didn't get any sex education. So to have a show that was dedicated to describing things outside the general norm of, of heteronormative monogamous relationships, that, that was valuable. 
it was so nice. Yeah, it was good to have. And then in general, I think for me in that age, soft porn was good for me to watch. Yeah. Right. So you had Emmanuel. I had Emmanuel and all all the series. <laughs> so. I, I had Silk Stockings. Silk Stockings. Wait, that sounds familiar. Yeah. Which network? You know, I think it might have been like early syndicated show that would have been on various different channels yeah, like yeah. it was just like a sexy nighttime show that m- might come on uh here and there depending on the, I can't the tv market i do remember the name though yeah i don't remember a storyline with emmanuel besides she went to paris she met a dude yeah they fucked i actually <laughs> found after our interview i found some some clips on youtube did you yeah they're awesome aren't they? they are awesome yeah. they're very much a uh, product of their time very large cell phones mm, like <laughs> <laughs> you know sexy airline travel back when traveling in in airplanes was still kind of a little sexy a, a little sexy a little exotic kind of still fun instead of the chore that it is today was there a good storyline do you remember i can't remember but she did she did have lots of reasons to be placed in very sexy situations <laughs> yeah where she, it was as though she was sort of falling into different situations mm. rather than her pursuing them mm-hmm. in a very intentional way oh because she can't look like a slut i guess right. right but obviously she was somebody who was pretty evolved and and wasn't afraid of her sexuality or didn't mm-hmm. re- refuse it, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. But I I did get the sense of what like what you're saying is that she was in control the whole time. Like, I do think so. Yeah, that to me was a very valuable aspect of the storytelling is that she was making the decisions. Yeah, and it was femme centered. I felt mm-hmm. like you know it was it was totally femme centered. It was totally focused on. Her. Her, I mean, the dudes came in and they were hot, but she was the core of the story throughout. It, it looked really interesting. I wonder if you could find them in streaming or something. I might, you know, I'm going to look. <laughs> now I'm going to look. I'll look at it tonight. I I feel like maybe part of me wanted, um, there's these, you go back as a trans person, uh, especially if you come out later and you find these little hints, right? Like, it's like, oh, that's why, that's why when I got mad, I went and slept in my mom's closet, right? You know, and had her shoes on, right? That stuff didn't click. I mean, it seems obvious when I say it out loud, but I think my obsession with that that particular show was something about her body yeah. and her, right? Like, the men were hot, right? But it was her that I think that, not necessarily an attraction to her, but a wanting my body to look like hers. Yeah. Or wanting to be her. Or wanting to be her, and right? Just, and have men look at me the way that they looked at her. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to add that that maybe you didn't touch on in your interview? Or maybe something you've experienced between the interview and now? No, I told you about the hair, so. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Well, I, okay. White boys, white boys do not touch our hair mm. right you don't know what's going on up there there's like you need some permission now there's certain black girls that are like you can actually work with this hair because i set it up so you can pull my hair mm. but it's like a go-to and you're pulling on hair and you don't know what you're about to pull off <laughs> don't touch it <laughs> this has been a public service announcement this is a public service announcement <laughs> don't touch it don't touch the hair unless you have permission so so the this guy just 
he went for your hair and it, it came He just off. went for it. Mm-hmm. Like, just went for it. Yeah. Baby. <laughs> you know, I'm usually pretty, pretty good about securing things. But for some reason, I wasn't expecting this to happen that night. Yeah. And it just came right off. <laughs> But did you guys at least laugh about it? Well, I, not really, not at first, because he was like, oh, why do you wear a wig? And I was like, how did you not know it was a wig? Like, what's going on? Some guys are pretty clueless. And then I'm like, why would you even ask me that? You know I'm a trans woman. Why do you think I wear a wig, right? Yeah. And so I was like, what you want to do? But, I, you know, I fixed it and we finished, but... Uh, awkward well it was awkward i guess he learned his lesson well you know i had been dreading that for a long time like i'm dreading um like hair not being in the right place but when it happened it was fine yeah i was just like give me my hair and put it back on let's keep fucking (laughs) (laughs) well you know you don't want to not get the good stuff well, <laughs> you know? that's true. Yeah, <laughs> you want to go ahead and soldier through. I've I've certainly had to do that after some embarrassing road bumps along the way to orgasm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so everyone out there, don't touch the hair. Don't touch the hair. <laughs> if you had asked me whether or not I have humor around sex or a sense of humor, you know, in bed... I would have said no, but listening to my own interview, I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah, actually, I do. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? No, this is great. Okay, cool. Well, cool. Thank you so much for, for doing this. Thank you. This is just so, I learned so much. <laughs> I can't wait to uh, share this with people. So thanks again. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of Fruit Bowl, please give us a rating and review it and tell your friends about us. To learn more about Fruit Bowl, visit our website, fruitbowlpodcast.com, where you can listen to archived episodes and learn more about the project. If you're interested in being interviewed, you can also read a list of frequently asked questions, as well as a list of the questions that I ask in the interview. There's also a contact page where you can write me and ask me any questions you might have about the process. Thanks for listening. Production of Fruit Bowl is supported in part by Hump Film Fest, bringing audiences a new kind of porn since 2005. Hump's carefully curated short film program is a cornucopia of body types, ages, shapes, colors, sexualities, genders, kinks, and fetishes, all united by a shared spirit of sex positivity. Hump is a celebration of creative sexual expression, and you'll be touched by the sincerity and vulnerability in which these films are lovingly made. The 14th annual Hump Film Festival is now touring to over 50 cities across the U.S. and Canada in 2019. Get your tickets for Hump in a city near you at humpfilmfest.com.